Well, good morning, South Winds. Uh, we are excited about starting a brand new five-week series today through the short uh, New Testament letter called Titus. And uh, we're going to be seeing that Titus is all about the good life. So I want to begin by asking you, when you hear that phrase, the good life, what comes to your mind? We know what our culture tells us the good life is all about. It's about money and it's about sex and power and lots of all those things. Our, our, our culture sees the good life as consisting of good things that we get for ourselves. Maybe you think about it and you think that for you the good life is about family, uh, about good relationships. Maybe it's about experiences, travel, uh, getting out in nature. Maybe it's about education. And it's kind of interesting. There are a lot of things uh, that make up the good life that are good in and of themselves. But the problem is, a lot of times, we, we get some of those things and then they're taken away. And, and many of us, we actually never get to experience any of those things. Many of us begin to wonder if we're ever going to know anything about the good life. But what if, what if the good life didn't consist of things that we get for ourselves? What if the good life could never be taken away from us? What if we could truly know the good life even if we never got any of all those things that the world says makes up the good life? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at in this series, The Good Life According to God. And Titus, of course, is a part of the Bible, which is God's word. And in the Bible, we learn about the good life as God defines it. And we know that God is good, that God created life, that God knows how life works best, and therefore, he knows the best way to have a good life. We know that the Bible teaches he wants us to have a good life. And you might say, in a sense, that that's what the entire Bible is about. But the book of Titus has a really sharp focus on the good life, as we're going to see. Now, we're going to start today in the introduction of this book. It's the first four verses of chapter one. And this is the introduction to the entire letter. And so, as you're getting there, let me set the stage for our study by telling you about some things you need to know regarding Titus. First, uh, this is a letter written by Paul to a man named Titus. And Titus was kind of Paul's problem solver, Paul's troubleshooter. Every time we see Titus in the New Testament, Paul is sending him somewhere to solve some problem in some church. This time, Paul is sending Titus to an island called Crete. Now, Crete is a large island. It's off the coast of Greece. And in this time, it was widely known as one of the most immoral places in the ancient world. Historians tell us that, that the Cretan people tended to stay drunk pretty much all the time. We know from studying history that in Crete, lying was a celebrated art form. In the Greek language, one of the words in Greek that uh, means lying comes from Crete. It's the, the word kretizo, and it's built on the, the name of this island. In fact, if you want to get the effect of it in English, it would be like saying to lie, you would say to Crete. <laughs> you know, you would say to someone, stop creting. Uh, or you would say, you creted, you creting, cretin, you liar. That's the way it was. It was so associated with with their, their culture, Cretans were liars. And Crete 
was not only infamous for treachery, it was also infamous for greed. Uh, The historian Polybius wrote that nowhere in the ancient world were politicians more corrupt than in Crete. Another facet about this island was that most of the men in Crete had served as mercenary soldiers and they came back to the island after they served and as a result of their service, the island cities were plagued with violence. They were plagued with sexual corruption. When you put it all together, you begin to see that the the people of Crete, well, they had a vision of the good life and for them, it was all about sex and money and power, about getting whatever they wanted, even if they had to lie for it, even if someone else had to die for it. See, Crete was a very dark place. And the reason that Paul was sending Titus to Crete is the problems of Crete's culture were becoming problems in the churches of Crete. See, Paul doesn't really give all of the details, but somehow these churches had come under the influence of some corrupt Cretan leaders, and they said they were Christians, but they were ruining the churches. We're gonna talk uh, more over the next five weeks about some of the things they were teaching, but Paul sent Titus to Crete to restore order in the church, to make things right, to get the churches in Crete back again, seeking the good life, the life that God had planned for them. Now, Paul has in this letter one central concern, and we see it actually in the very first verse. I just want to highlight it now before we get to it later, and it's this, the truth that leads to godliness. Paul wants these Christians in Crete to know the truth and then to live that truth out, to live godly lives. And we're gonna see this again and again and again. Paul says that's the good life, that's the best life, and it's actually, he says, a life you can have right now. So how's it gonna happen? Well, according to Paul, it's gonna happen this way. His overarching idea is it happens through the gospel. He says the gospel is what creates and what sustains the good life. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that God has sent his son to this world and in his grace he's saving sinners. Paul's gonna say in broad terms the gospel does this in two different ways. The gospel transforms us, Paul says, by giving us new life, by forgiving our sins, making us clean and whole again. And then he says the gospel also trains us, trains us to to live that new life. Now, we're gonna see this in a couple of weeks most clearly in what is the central paragraph of this letter of of Titus, and it's chapter two, verses 11 and 14. Uh, It's so important that I want you to see it now, and I wanna encourage you to do something. I wanna encourage you, while we're studying this letter, to memorize these four verses. In fact, I wanna challenge you to memorize these four verses, and I'm gonna put you on the spot right now, okay? If you are willing to give it a shot, okay, would you raise your hand right now? Are you willing to try to memorize these four verses and, uh, and just get them in your heart so that you really absorb them, you really can begin to live them out. I want us to read them right now, so I want you to hear them as we are getting started. Paul writes, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness 
and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. See, God's grace is Jesus, and his grace has appeared, and this grace is the gospel that saves us, and this gospel not only saves us and transforms us, this gospel trains us. It, it teaches us to say no to all the things that keep us from the good life, as we're going to see. Now, with all of that in mind today, we're gonna look at those first four verses of chapter one, and I'm gonna show you four foundations for the good life. Let's begin by reading chapter one, verses one through four. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, if you were to read through all of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament and you were to read specifically his introductions, you would come to the conclusion, I think, that Paul's introduction here in Titus is his most extensive, his most theologically profound introduction in all of his letters with the possible exception of the introduction in Romans. And this introduction, it gives us four foundations that we must build into our lives if we are going in our own lives to experience the good life. Now here's the reality. When we think about this, some of you are, are already actively doing that. And this study of Titus is just gonna strengthen you in that, help you grow in that. But some of you, you've never even asked the question. You've never even thought about this. And then there are some of you, you've heard about these things, you know about some of these things, but here's the truth. You are sitting on the fence. You're not really building anything. And my prayer for you today is that today would be the day that you would begin to seek to build in your own life what is the good life, the truly good life. Life. And it's gonna take these four foundations. So if you would write them down, here's the first one. Uh, you need to know who you are. Know who you are. To find the good life, you have to know who you are. And Paul begins this letter by making very clear to us how he sees his own identity. And by extension, he is teaching us how we should see our identity. You say, what do you mean? Well, look at verse one, first words. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, just think about Paul and his history. At one time in his life, Paul persecuted Christ's followers. I mean, he actually had them killed. He had people killed. But one day, Paul met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and everything changed. He believed that Jesus was Lord, and so now, now Paul is God's servant. He's Jesus Christ's apostle. And I just kind of want to pause for a moment for us to think about this, to, to think about how amazing this is, that God, God would redeem and God would use a person like Paul is so important for us to understand. It shows us how truly incredible God's grace and love really are. For God to not only forgive Paul for what he had done, but also to, to use him with that sin in his background. Here's the thing, that ought to be an encouragement to you and me today, amen? I mean, there are some of you who've done some things and been some places, 
You know, you're, you're, you're thinking that there's no way that God could ever use my life. I've ruined it. That is not true. And Paul is an example for us who shows us no one is beyond the grace of God. God can take and redeem and use anyone who is willing to open up their life to him. God can work in and through your life. Now, going back to identity, see our culture today, we live in a time where our culture thinks that like identity is the number one issue in life. You have to know who you are. We're always talking about identity. You know, you have to be true to who you are. You have to do you. You know, authenticity is the prime virtue in our culture. And, and we're just told again and again, you know, you can be whoever you can be whatever you want to be. It's just up to you. It's kind of an interesting thing to go back and look at Crete. The Cretans had an identity thing going too. The Cretans believed that they were the original Greeks. They believed that, that they were the original true Greeks. This was their identity. It's kind of like, uh, you know, people, some of you do probably. I mean, most of us have someone in our lives like this. It's like they always claim they were the first in anything, doesn't matter what it is, right? You know anybody like that? You know, it, it's kind of like, you know, oh my gosh, I, I was, I, I, I heard that album before it was even recorded. I, I mean, it had, I heard it all in my mind. You know, it doesn't matter. They're always, they're, they were always there. They knew about it before it even happened. And that's kind of how the Cretans were. They believed, they believed that the Olympian gods, you know, the gods of Greek mythology were actually men and women of Crete that had been elevated to the status of deity because of their good deeds. And so they thought they were special. They felt entitled and, and this fed into their culture. It was the reason underlines why there was so much greed, violence, corruption, all, all the lying. They, they, they had built their identity on it and here's the thing, they built their identity on something false. It wasn't true. I mean, think about today. How many people today think they know who they are, but they've built their identity on something that is false? And I think it's fascinating to consider that in a time like ours, so many people who are focused on finding themselves and, you know, being who they are, and our culture gives us full permission just to explore that and do that and to be whatever you want, and yet so many people struggle with their identity so much. So many people trying to find themselves, so many identity crises, and here's the thing. It's hard when you have to make it up yourself. It is hard when you have to make it up yourself, but here's what we can know today. If you know Jesus you don't have to make up your identity. Our, our culture says we decide our identity. God's word says that God determines our identity and who we are dictates how we function in the world. And friends, there is such, there is such strength and peace in knowing that. It's not all up to you. See, to know the truly good life, what it means is we have to learn who we truly are according to God and then we have to live that out. And there are a number of things across the New Testament about this, but Paul right here gives us two things very important that we need to know about our identity. You can write this down. First, we need to know that we are servants belonging to God. You are a servant belonging to God. You are someone who has been moved from serving self to serving God. 
See, the Bible says before we met God, we used to serve sin. Some of you clearly remember that part of your life. You served sin. You were a slave to sin. But Paul says now we are servants to God. God has set us free to serve him. And I just want to ask you personally, can you say this about yourself? Can you say today with truth, I'm a servant of God I believe my life belongs to him, that he wants to use me. I've I've surrendered my life to him. Every day I'm surrendering to him. And again, for some of us, this has not been settled in our hearts. And maybe today the truth is you're kind of on the fence. You're kind of like, okay, I'll give God some things, but you're one of those people who wants to keep your options open, right? There's some things in your life and you're thinking, you know, I, I wanna follow God, but like, See, you're not gonna take that away from me. I'm not gonna get to do that. I wanna keep my options open. There's some stuff I wanna do. One day I'll give God everything. Well, that means, here's the truth, you're only serving yourself, just serving yourself. And I wanna tell you today, it is one of the reasons why you find your life going back and forth here and there. It's why you're so easily swayed, so easily influenced and controlled by what other people think. For some of you, it's why your life is so filled with stress, and anxiety, you're in between. Your, your identity is based on something besides serving God and if you wanna know the good life, you need to settle this issue. You need to surrender your life to God and I wanna encourage you to settle it today. Get off the fence. You see, if you've trusted in God's work, in Jesus, to rescue you and to redeem you, to save your life, to secure your eternal destiny. The Bible says you belong to him. You don't belong to yourself. The Bible says you are no longer your own, that you have been bought with a price. And Paul is saying here in Titus, so live like it. Live like it. See, are you your own person? Or do you truly belong to God? You have to choose and you will never truly know the good life until you begin to live like this. Now, for Paul, this issue was settled. Paul is clear, crystal clear. He says, I've been redeemed from darkness. I'm a servant of God. And he said, that is what motivates, moves me forward on my mission in life. That's the second thing you need to know about your identity. You are not only a servant belonging to God, you're also a sent one commissioned by God. You are sent by God, everyone who names the name of Christ. Now, this comes from what Paul says about himself, that he was an apostle. You've probably heard this before. The word apostle means sent one. Paul had been sent by God to plant churches across the Mediterranean world. God gave him a role that God only has given to a few people. God used him, as we know today, to write almost 30% of the New Testament But here's the reality. Every Christian, every Christ follower, doesn't matter who you are, you are sent by God. God has given you a mission. Wherever you live and however you're living your life, God has given you something he has sent you to do. We are all sent people. We all have a mission and that mission centers around the gospel, the good news of God in Christ Jesus, his son, Jesus sent to save us. Now, Paul, he understands his role is to tell everyone about this marvelous God. He wants people everywhere to come to faith. But notice it's not just come to faith. He says, my goal is to, do you see it? Further the faith. Further the faith of God's elect. 
That's actually uh, our mission as a church, to help people become fully devoted Christ followers. It also should be your mission as an individual Christ follower that you are in your life longing and trying to help people come to faith. You want people to come to faith through your life and then you want those people to grow in their faith. This is who all of us are. We're all on mission together. God has sent all of us. God has commissioned all of us to help people make decisions to follow Christ, but then also to see them become fully devoted disciples of Christ. See, we are God's elect. We are God's elect. God has chosen us to be in his family. God has made us his servants and God has sent us out as his representatives. Do you know, understand the privilege that is? Do you consider that to be a privilege to, to be a representative of the God of the universe? That's what he's called us to be. We should rejoice in that. And I'm just telling you today, if you're not living out of this identity, you are missing out on the good life. You are missing out on the good life. I wanna point something out to you here that many people get confused about. We'll talk more about this later in this series, but notice what Paul says, he was not only sent to further faith, he says, and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And what I wanna point out is that a lot of people think knowledge and faith don't go together. They think there are facts And then there's faith. And they think, you know, some people live by facts. You know, know, I trust the science. That's what people might say today. But other people, they live by faith. And they don't have to know anything. And Paul says, no, that's totally wrong. Paul says knowledge and faith are not incompatible. They're actually inseparable. It is the knowledge of God that leads us to faith. The Bible never talks about blind faith. And if in your conception of faith, you think of it in some way as just blind faith, where you have to trust God with no reason, you don't understand what the Bible teaches. Knowledge and faith always go together. God reveals himself so we know who he is. Um, he, He gives us truth about himself so that we can trust him. Our faith is based on knowledge. God wants us to have knowledge and faith and to keep them together. And it's kind of an irony for many, many people, maybe some of you here today, people are living their lives based on things for which there is no evidence. They're, they're ultimately based on blind faith. I, I'll give you just one example, money. We all want money. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand or anything like that, but everybody really would like to have a lot more money. Some of you are still kind of daydreaming about that billion plus dollar lottery, you know, a couple of weeks ago that somebody else won in another state, right? You're thinking about that, but here's the question and you know the answer. When has money ever given anyone true happiness? And we know it doesn't work. We know it doesn't work, but we still want it, right? See, people desire things that don't bring them what they're hoping for. And and it's really these other things that are our blind faith. See, God, God has given us knowledge of who he is. And in response, we trust him. And as we trust him, God promises we're gonna find the good life. 
So what does that look like? Well, this is the second foundation for the good life. Second thing is decide how you'll live. And, and what this is about is kind of a, an axiom or a maxim. And it's, you can say it a number of ways, but I'll say it like this. Behavior always expresses belief. You know that in your own life, right? You do what you believe. And if you say you believe something, but it doesn't issue out in action, you don't really, really believe it. Whatever you believe, it'll show up in the way you live. And so if we are servants of God, if we are sent by God, what does that mean about how we live? Well, Paul tells us in verse one um, that the good life is the godly life. He says, Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And so he says, when we know the truth, it should result in life change, visible life change. Paul calls this godliness. And it's just another way of, uh, of telling us that the way we live determines whether our faith is authentic or not. Does that make sense? What is godliness? Well, I think a lot of people, when they hear that word, we, we, we tend to kind of equate it with certain ways of being religious. Most people don't walk around actually saying, I, I wanna be a godly person, or they certainly don't say, I am godly. We don't wanna say that. And a lot of times we think it was a religious, we think of it as a religious thing, but in actuality, the word that Paul uses was very common in the ancient world, and here's how they used it. It simply meant for them right behavior that lined up with what you worshiped. And here's how it worked. Back in the pagan world, people believed in all kinds of different gods and goddesses, and it was the gods and goddesses that you believed in that determined how you lived. And so when you worshiped a god or a goddess, whoever it was, you, and then you actually lived in line with who that god or goddess was, people would say, you're godly. You're like your god. You're like your goddess. Bring it up to today, it's another way of saying you actually practice what you preach, right? Does that make sense? And so Paul, he takes this word and he attaches it to the true God. And so we could put it like this, godliness is living according to God's character and truth. And, and that's why reading God's word is so important. You cannot have true knowledge of God, who he is without understanding who he has revealed himself to be in his word. Here's another thing. Godliness is not some abstract standard that people make up. See, some of you, you think godliness is your own opinion. Like, you're always trying to make sure everyone else lives in line with your opinion, and you think if they do that, then they're godly. And you see, you, you've sanctified your opinions. It's kind of like, I don't like that, and therefore you shouldn't do that. And if you don't do that, that thing I don't like, then you're godly. That's my opinion. And so some of you, you like to bind other people up with your opinions. But godliness is not a standard any of us make up. Godliness is about God. Godliness is about reflecting the God who loves you, the God who loves the people around you. The way you treat other people, the way you live your life should reflect who God is. So like, why do we tell the truth and not lie? Because God is truth. Why, why do we serve others and not serve ourselves first? Because God is a God of love who has served us in the sending of his son. 
Why are we generous with our money and with our time? Because God was so very generous with us. Do you ever stop to think about how generous God has been to you? How very kind and merciful and gracious God has been to you? See, here's the reality. (laughs) If you say you know God and you're not a generous person, and that does include your money, you don't get to bracket the money out and say, oh, I'm generous in these other areas. Generous with everything in your life. If you are not a generous person, it's a sign you don't really know a generous God. See, we, we're generous because God is generous. That's a godly life. We wanna live the way that God is. We wanna be the kind of people that show God to the world. And I'm just telling you today, I'm making this connection. Godliness is the way to the good life. It's the way to the best life. It's the way that other people around us find the good life as they see us. See, when people see Jesus in us, it points them to who God is. And that actually is why ungodliness in the church is such a problem. Listen to this. Ungodliness means I'm telling a lie about who God is. And people who see that get it. You know, when they look at people who say they know God, even though their lives tell a whole different story, that is a huge reason today why so many people are walking away from Christianity, rejecting Christianity. They see people who say they're Christians and yet they live in a way that does not seem to measure up to who Jesus is. See, we can tell lies about who God is with our lives. And this is a good time to ask yourself, is my life drawing people toward Jesus to the good life Or is my life pushing them away? We'll see this next week. But in Titus 1.16, Paul says, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. I heard someone say this a long time ago. They said, "If, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I mean, is it actually tangible, visible in your life? People can see it. See, if there's not enough evidence, that's called hypocrisy. And you know, if if you're not smoking what you're selling, then why should anyone else? Yes, Pastor Mike actually said that. (laughs) You can put it, you can tweet it or whatever if you want to. I I knew I had to, I had to figure out a way to get through the Raider fans. Somehow it's to communicate with them, so. You know who you are. (laughs) See, to live the good life, we must live a godly life. And this is such, in such contrast to our world. Our culture defines the good life as doing what I wanna do, as satisfying my desires, whatever they are, whenever I have them, as being true to myself. That's what they thought about in Crete. That's how they saw it. But God says the good life is knowing Jesus and loving Jesus, following Jesus by obeying Jesus. That's the good life. Are you a servant? Are you sent? Have you decided how you're going to live? See, everybody needs to decide if they're gonna line up how they live with what they believe. 
See, the truth is also everybody believes something. You know, it's kind of funny in our culture. Some people say, yeah, I, there's certain people, we just don't really believe things. And then there's the religious people. That's not true. Everybody believes something. Everybody has some type of faith. Here's the reality. Everybody worships. The question is just who or what. And you can tell what people worship by the way they spend their money. You can tell what people worship by the jobs they choose or by the way they they use their time. You can tell what matters most to them. That's what you worship by the way that they live. Everybody worships. Very profound statement was made by an acclaimed author whose name is David Foster Wallace. He has since died, but um, almost 20 years ago now, he gave a what's become a very famous commencement address um, at a university, and he was actually an atheist, not a Christian, which will surprise you when you, you hear what he, he says as someone who actually didn't have faith. He said this, he said, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Everybody believes something. Everybody worships something. And it's always reflected in the way they live. The question for you is, have you decided how you're gonna live? If you decide you're gonna live a godly life, you are building a foundation for the good life. That leads to the third foundation for the good life. And that is understand why you believe Why do you believe? Why as Christ followers do we have what Paul refers to in these words that we've read as hope? Why do we have the the hope of eternal life, Paul says? Like, are we crazy to have this hope, to believe this? Is this a, a promise, a hope worth trusting in? Paul tells us here why he believes. He tells us why you should believe. And he says it's because this hope of eternal life rests on the trustworthiness of God. Look again at verses two and three. He says, in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time in which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Why do we have this hope? Why do we believe in this thing called eternal life? You can't answer that question. You need to be able to. It is a foundation for the good life. And here's the real question that's underneath those. The real question is, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? Is our hope reliable? I mean, what makes our hope greater than all the other hopes that are offered out there in the world? And Paul actually gives us three reasons in these verses. He says, first of all, God has promised God has made a promise. It is rooted in his very character. Again, Paul is trying to get us to see how totally trustworthy God is. And all biblical hope is based on the nature and the promises of God. Paul says God made this promise even before the beginning of time. That's an important thing because it tells us this promise for us is not based on anything we have done. God made it because of who he is. He roots his promise in his own character. Second reason that we, we, why we believe is God never lies. What Paul is doing here, and I want you to listen, this is very important to understanding this letter. What Paul is doing here, very subversive, very subversive. Paul, right here, is beginning his critique of chaotic Cretan culture. 
Say that fast three times. Chaotic Cretan culture. And what he, he does is he taps into the language and concepts that kind of emerge from this Cretan culture. The, the ideas that dominated the way they saw the world. And I already told you the Cretan culture saw lying as morally acceptable. It was okay. Whatever you wanted, you could lie to get it. Didn't matter who you hurt. It didn't matter what your reasons were. You could lie. Everyone accepted that. And, and Paul's reference to lying and to God never lying is actually striking at the character of the God that most of the Cretans worshiped, which was the God named Zeus. Now, if you know your Greek mythology, um, maybe you know, because you've read it at some time, that Zeus was a liar. Zeus was a liar. He was a very powerful God. He showed courage and honor in some ways, but he was a liar. Time and time and time again, Zeus would lie to get what he wanted. He would lie to have sexual relationships when he wanted to. And just think about how that kind of thing would shape your life if you're a worshiper of Zeus. If you worship a God who lies to like get a sexual relationship with whoever he wants and it's all good, then if you wanted to have a sexual relationship with someone who's not your spouse, you would think, well, look at what Zeus did. Like WWZD, what would Zeus do? Well, Zeus lied. I can lie. Lying's okay. See, Paul, Paul is coming at this and he's coming into that culture and he says, no, here is the true God and he never lies. He never lies. And this was an incredible concept to a first century pagan person, the people who mostly representative there on Crete. They believed in so many different gods. And one of the results of that was because they had all these gods and they tended to kind of believe in a lot of them. You didn't really know anything about them. And it's kind of interesting. I've seen this today many times. A lot of people's beliefs today, they, they, they will say they believe in something and yet when you ask them why they believe it, they don't really know much about it. It's kind of like they just absorb these beliefs from the cultural air they're breathing and you know, they look around and they see someone who they think is kind of cool or maybe someone who they think is kind of smart and they believe that, so I'll believe, but they don't really understand it. They don't even know why. And that's how it was back then. They had all these gods. And, and so it's kind of like you better believe in as many of them as you can, even if you don't know what they're about, because you're just hoping you believe in the right God and you'll do the right thing. And that God will maybe bless you. Hopefully, you know, that you won't be cursed. You won't be punished by the God. The gods were dangerous back then. They were unpredictable. I mean, the, the chief God, Zeus, champion of creed, was a liar, and Paul steps into this culture and Paul says, there is one true God and he is absolutely trustworthy. The one true God never lies. He never lies. And one of the things I was thinking about this week is that that is hard for some of you to hear. Because the truth is in your heart, you feel some of you like God has lied to you. God hasn't come through for you. 
I talk to people sometimes who will tell me that. Yeah, God didn't come through for me. God didn't keep this promise. And it's a very real feeling that people have. A lot of people feel like this at times. God hasn't come through. But here's the catch. Whenever I talk to someone who says this, I will ask them, well, what is the promise that God didn't keep? And, and they always end up saying something that the Bible never actually says. You know, I've talked with people who are resentful because God hadn't come through for them. And I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. The Bible says God always keeps his promises. And so I ask them, well, what is the promise God didn't keep? And they say, well, God promised that I always have all the money I needed. And it's like, yeah, well, so, you know, that's not actually in the Bible. It's not. Like, you made up a promise in your mind and then when God didn't do the thing he never promised to do, you got mad. So how does that even make sense? And you know, I'll put it this way, okay? Maybe you wanna write this down. God will always break a promise he never made. He just will. And so many times we want God to do something and so we go looking for verses and we twist and shape the verse to fit what we really want. We turn it into a promise and then when God doesn't do it, we get mad. And maybe that's happened to you. It's kind of interesting, you know, when you read the Bible, there's, there actually are lots of true promises that we ignore. We, we don't wanna claim those promises. Great example, 2 Timothy 3, 12, which says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, say will, will be persecuted. That's a promise. Did anybody wake up this morning and say, you know, Jesus, today I want to claim 2 Timothy 3.12 for my life. You know, nobody has like a coffee cup with, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You don't drink your coffee out of that, right? See, there are lots of promises we don't want. And yet, even though the Bible says some things, we're still shocked when it happens. But here's the thing Paul is telling us, God never lies. And there's more good news than that. It doesn't just mean he won't say anything untrue. It means once he promises, he'll always keep the promise. He, he will never change from that promise. He is not a capricious guy where you just, you know, like you don't know what you're gonna get on any given day. And that's so important for some of you because that's how you grew up. Like every morning you would wake up and you would be wondering, is it gonna be good dad or is it gonna be bad dad today? I don't know. You, you never knew. Will he be in a good mood or a bad mood? You walk, you walk around on eggshells and some of us can project that out on God. It's like, is God gonna bless me today or is God gonna curse me today? I don't know. The Bible says that is not so. God does not lie. God is a promising God, which means he will never tell us anything that is untrue. It means also that once he's made a promise, he will not change from it. That's the third thing. God always keeps his promises and that is the ultimate reason why we believe. God has promised us that he will do what he says so we can trust him. If you read verse three in a more literal translation, it'll say something like this. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me. The word that Paul is referring to is the gospel. And see, our faith is a faith of revelation where God has revealed who he is and what he has done. And he's done that objectively. He's done it in space, time, and history. 
God has done something, God has spoken, God has acted in a way that we can hear about and we can know, and we, we, we can evaluate and we can experience. And that is a reality regardless of how you feel about it. Please listen right now to me, right now. The tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. That is a fact, that is true. It doesn't matter how you feel today. The tomb is empty, that changes everything. We can believe, we can trust. I don't have to depend on my feelings. I can live my life based on God's word. We can rely on him. That brings us to the fourth and final foundation for the good life, and that is accept what you need. Accept what you need. To live the good life, you need to know what you need And you need to accept those needs. In other words, you need to be a humble person who admits your need. Paul closes his introduction by speaking of two of the central blessings of the gospel. And he says, we all need them. He says to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul says, we need grace. We all need grace, amen? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is the reason for all of the blessings that you experience in life, all of the blessings of salvation. Grace means you don't deserve it. It's a gift from God, a gift that only God can give. We've received that grace and we should accept that grace and we should rest in that grace. We should hold on to that grace. We should walk in that grace. It is the grace that rescues us from sin. It is the grace that relieves us of all of our striving. Oh, there's some of you right now, you have been working and running, reaching all of your life, trying to grasp things that you can't ever seem to get to. You have all these longings, you have all these desires, and what you need to hear today is they are only satisfied in Jesus and his grace. See, all all of your longings for approval, for acceptance and accomplishments, all of those things melt under the realization that all of God's rewards and blessings are given to us by grace. We don't have to earn them. He gives them to us because he's good. Think about the way the realization of that will shape your life. Everything changes when you live out of grace. And then there's peace. Peace is the reconciliation that grace brings. This this word Paul uses reminds us that we were at war with God because of our sin, that we had turned away from the God who created us. We, We worshiped all these other things instead of him. We were sitting on a throne at the center of our universe and that put us in opposition. It made us enemies of God. But through believing in what God has provided, we are now at peace with him. We have peace and our relationship with him. You know, if that's not you, then all the alienation that you feel in your life, it it all is because you do not have peace with God. The good news though is you can have peace with God. You can have that peace today. You can know peace with him today. And, And once you know peace with God by receiving what Jesus has done for you on the cross, having your sins forgiven, once that happens, it just, it spills out into peace with other people, peace in all of our relationships. When when Paul gives this greeting in verse four, he says to Titus, my true son in our common faith, 
See, grace and peace, they're not just empty words. I hope they'll never be empty words here at Southwinds. These are words full of meaning and, and, and they're alive with hope. And I wanna keep telling you they're incredibly countercultural. This is not how our world works. Because Paul ends with, a, with, with a, a word that was very familiar in that ancient culture. The last word in verse four is the word savior. Back then that word was used to describe a, a God or a person who would rescue and heal, help other people. Maybe the modern equivalent, about as close as we can get, would be like heroes. People who, people who rescue and protect. See, in Christian culture, the most powerful hero was Zeus. They, they would look to Caesar as a savior. And, and Paul very deliberately takes this word and applies it to God. He says, God is our savior. And all the people in the Greco-Roman world will be like, wow, God? And then the Jewish people, the religious people would hear that and they would be very familiar with God as savior and they would say, well, we know that. But then Paul, at the end of his greeting, he extends this title savior to Jesus. And that's like, that's like dropping a theological bomb. He says, God's saving activity comes to us through Jesus. It is Jesus who is the source of all grace and peace. It is God's work in Jesus that is the life-changing possibility for every person living on the planet. God came and revealed himself in Jesus. And because of that, you can be saved. See, back then in their culture, the Romans would look to the gods or they would look to Caesar as a savior who would save them from war, save them from anarchy. And a lot of pagan people would hear what someone like Paul was saying and would think, oh, we don't, we don't need a savior. We've got Caesar. We're fine. You tell some people today they need a savior and they go, I don't need a savior. I've, I've got health insurance. <laughs> there are some people who would say, I have got the government. All right. You know, politicians, they're gonna sort everything out like they always do. Economy is gonna be fine, right? A lot of people don't think they need a savior. Some of these pagans didn't think they needed saving. And then there's always people, the religious people, who think they can save themselves. And then Paul comes in, and Paul undercuts every belief system by saying, no, Jesus is Savior. He's the only Savior who saves us from the ultimate chaos of sin and death, who saves us from the spiritual death that was a part of us because we are apart from God. Paul says there's no human being that can stand before God unless they stand identified with Jesus. It is only through Jesus that we are transformed and we are brought to life. And Paul says, and we say today, as we believe that message and live that message and proclaim that message, we're gonna see people and we're gonna see neighborhoods and we're gonna see cities come to life and, and really that is what the letter of Titus is all about. You must be saved. See, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus' death on the cross for your sins, his rising from the dead on the third day on Easter Sunday, then you are lost and you must be saved. And so I urge you, put your faith in Jesus. 
If you are here today and you are trusting in Jesus, then it means you are continually being saved. You are continually being rescued from all the wrong ways of thinking and living, those patterns, those old patterns that we, we carried over from our old life. Jesus is still to this day our Savior. And if you trust Jesus and his grace, then you can know Jesus and his peace. You can find real hope, the hope of life eternal, and you can begin to experience today the good life. So I end where, where Paul began. Do you belong to God? Has your heart seen giving up your life to Jesus as true freedom, the good life? Have you seen that giving your life to Jesus, that's where the joy is. That's where the, the, the peace is. And some of you are still blind to that. I pray today that God would open your eyes, that you would see. And some of you are sitting here and you're saying, yeah, I believe that, but it's like half-hearted belief. You're on the fence. You're still trying to run your own life. You're still trying to find the good life apart from God. And I pray today that you would see today that one of the reasons you struggle so much and are so anxious and you're so afraid is because you are not fully placing your hope and your trust in Jesus. See, by the power of God, you can do that today. You can know that you belong to him, that he purchased you at an infinite price, that you are not your own. He gave everything for you. And once you know that, and once you begin to live out of that, that's when you find true joy, true peace, true meaning, true purpose. That's when you find the good life, the good life. Do you wanna know the good life? Well, we're gonna be learning about it together as we study Titus Let's pray that God continues to open our eyes. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father God, I just ask that uh, right, right now your spirit would cause us to see so clearly what Jesus did for us, how he, he gave everything and at an infinite cost to himself, he saved us from our sins. And Lord, I just pray that in this moment, anyone who has never believed in Jesus as Savior and Lord would do so, that in their heart they would say, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, there is no other Savior. It's only you, Jesus. I believe you died on the cross for my sins, that you rose again to give me new life. Lord, I pray that that they would experience, even now, eternal life. And Lord, for us as a church, I, I pray that we would settle our hearts on the true foundation that we are yours and we should live for you and we're no longer gonna fight against you. We're gonna surrender to you and receive each day your grace and your peace and as we do that, Lord, that we would find the life that is truly life, the good life. Lord, we lift our prayers to you even now and we know that you hear us because you have told us you listen, you have promised to us and we know you never lie. So thank you, Lord, for listening to our prayers. We pray them now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.